This is Van Color. My name is Mo Mir, and today on This is Van Color, I am joined by Canada's premier animal rights lawyer. For over a decade, she has been a trailblazer in developing animal law in Canada, founding the first animal law section of the Canadian Bar Association, and she's the founder and current chair of the Animal Law Section BC branch. She also sits on the board of directors of the Vancouver Humane Society. She founded the Animal Law course at the University of British Columbia, where she has also been an adjunct professor. She has graced many local media outlets, but finally, she is here on This Is Van Color. She is one of the top 25 most influential lawyers in Canada, as per Canadian Lawyer Magazine, the founder of Bretter Law. She is Rebecca Bretter. Rebecca, how are you? (laughs) Thank you so much. It's so sweet. I'm so well. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. My pleasure. I'm very excited to have you here. (laughs) I hear you on CKNW all the time. I've even seen you on television. So I think it's cool that you're willing to come here and dumb down some of these important issues for a basic bro like me. Oh, please. Oh, but I'm like, I can't emphasize enough. And I'm honored. Thank you so much. I have a very obvious question. Shoot. Who exactly are you representing in your work? (laughs) Because from my understanding, maybe I'm wrong, animals can't hire legal representation. (laughs) So who is paying the bills here? Very good question. Um, Well, it's funny. Obviously, I'm representing the people who Mm -hmm. are trying to defend the interests of animals. Um, And obviously, they're the ones paying me. But what I do tell all of my clients is, well, you know, you know, you're my client technically, but really my true client is uh, the animal or the animals that are really at the heart of the issue that we're fighting about. Right. Okay. So my clients tend to be, um, well, it it, it depends what issue I'm dealing with. Mm -hmm. I I describe my practice as partly uh, representing private individuals and partly representing um, issues dealing with public law issues. Um, and, and in those cases, those would be issues for animal protection organizations. So okay. for, for like private individuals, they would be cases like um, I defend dogs. Um, I help people who want to bring a claim against a veterinarian mm-hmm. or if there are people living in a condominium or stratas, we call them here in BC, and, uh, and the strata wants to kick their animal out. I do not represent the strata. I only represent uh, the people with the animals. And and on that note, I only take on cases where I feel I could either help the animal directly Mm -hmm. or I could help advance the state of animal law generally in BC and in Canada. So for anyone listening there, and if they were bit by a dog and they're like, oh, I need an animal law lawyer who can help me because it involves a a dog. um, That's not you. And I want that dog put down. No, that is not me. That okay. is de- you've got the wrong girl for that. Sure. No, definitely not. So private me. individuals, and you said organizations as That's well. That's right. Animal protection organizations. Okay. Like as as an example, um, 
so I either take on cases where we sue governments or I do some consulting for them behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a current example is I act for the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition, the okay. CHDC, and it's a wonderful animal protection organization that's dedicated for the protection of horses um, in Canada. I mainly tend the slaughter uh, of horses in Canada and the mm-hmm. export of horses out of Canada. Um, and we're suing the federal government over the way they're transporting horses to be slaughtered in Japan okay. um, to turn to be turned into sushi meat. Yeah, so just a few examples. Interesting. Yeah. And you're not a prosecutor, so you're not involved with cruelty cases or anything like that, to that, be clear. That's right. So okay. the one area I don't uh, actively litigate or, or just litigate in general are animal cruelty cases because the only lawyers who can take those cases on mm-hmm. are government lawyers who act as prosecutors on behalf of the government to prosecute cases of animal cruelty. Okay. That may change one day. I don't know. But um, but right now, it's not part of my private practice. And also, just to be clear, um, I'm a lawyer in uh, private practice, an animal law lawyer in private practice. There are other uh, animal law lawyers in Canada who are um, professors. Okay. So they have a law degree and they teach animal law. Mm-hmm. Um, there are animal lawyers who uh, are in the nonprofit sector, mm-hmm. who are advocates essentially, uh, who use their legal training and skills to lobby the government and to um, and, and to educate people about animal law and animal rights issues. Sure. You're very pro-animal, it sounds like, as you said. <laughs> you, you pick the cases that you take. Are you a vegan too? I am. So you walk I, the walk. Um, I am. You're so and Vancouver. It, 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 <laughs> no, I don't know if it's just so Vancouver. I'm so me. <laughs> I'm so me. I mean, um, it, it's not a secret. I'm 42 uh, and I've been vegetarian since I've been in my mid-teens oh, wow. and, and vegan over the last few years. So vegan mm-hmm. for a smaller number of years compared to the number of years I've been vegetarian. But, sure. but it's really all because I just, I know too much. I know too much, and and because of the nature of the work that I do, um, I, I know how horribly animals are treated in the in the farming agricultural sector mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of other things. I know I don't want to get off topic, but well, let's yeah. get into this field because you clearly are a trailblazer in your field, a field which I assume is relatively new in the legal consciousness. How common is it for? animal welfare and animal rights to be codified into law around the world? Uh, uh, It's becoming more, definitely more of uh, a common issue that we're hearing about. I would say if you rewind the clock even 10 years Mm -hmm. uh, ago, animal issues and animal rights or animal protection, uh, as I prefer to call it, um, would not have been in the news so much, would not have been um, legislated as much as it is now. And I shouldn't say as much. I'm making it sound, I don't want to make it sound like, oh, it's being le- like animal issues are being legislated, changing laws are being changed all the time now. Sure. It's not. But we are, we are seeing um, 
a growing trend where politicians and those in charge of making changes in the law are taking animal issues seriously. And I think mm-hmm. we'll get to some of those changes that are uh, that have happened just recently in Canada in, in a moment from now. But um, so is it common? Um, I'd like to say yes, but I don't think it like it's full on common right now. Mm-hmm. I think it's a growing, put it this way, it's it's a growing interest around the world and it, it particularly here in Canada. And as a growing interest, it would seem to me, and maybe this is being too broad, but it would seem to me like there's a lot of stuff we have to figure out in the legal realm if it's new, oh, right? Oh, so much stuff. I mean, I don't even know where to begin with that <laughs> one. Um, I mean, that that's a conversation that, that could just, that alone could take The territory well still now. has to be charted, I guess, is my It does, my because point. I think the fundamental um, issue is that animals are still considered property. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we c- we being human beings can essentially do whatever we like with them. They're ours to do what we like. Right. There are now that said, of course there are laws governing the limits of what we can do to a certain extent. Like mm-hmm. we do have in Canada animal cruelty laws where it is against the law to be cruel mm-hmm. to an animal. But then there's a whole host of other issues that arise from that because our laws are not the greatest. I mean, they're right. um, they're not. The, I wouldn't say that they're the worst. Some some animal uh, rights activists do say that we have some of the worst animal laws in Canada. I, like BC I, does. Uh, Canada in general has the BC, worst laws in the uh, world for animal. Yeah, for when uh, uh, dealing with animal cruelty laws. Oh, interesting. Um, I think. Yeah, they're they're definitely not that great. I mean, the recent changes have been made that again we'll talk mm-hmm. about in a moment. But generally speaking, they're definitely not good. But they're not as bad um, because the potential is there to litigate them. And fundamentally, it comes down to finding the right prosecutor mm-hmm. with the right expert who can prove that um, there was animal cruelty in the case. Now, I'm really like keeping a general here. Sure, sure. But it's all to say that, yeah, our laws are kind of sucky when it comes to uh, to protecting animals. But that said, there are definitely ways that we could still help animals mm-hmm. with the use of our legal system. Well, let's talk about one of the big animal rights stories this year, and that was the cetacean ban, the ban of whales and dolphins in captivity in, in Canada. And before we get into the the legal realm, I just want to say this. I've always <laughs> had a kinship with dolphins and orcas. I loved them growing up. They were magical and mesmerizing, and the aquarium was my favorite place. And I remember going to SeaWorld as a child, and just being in awe of how magical and incredible these creatures were. And I totally did the hokey swim with the dolphins in Cuba, which I feel so bad about now. And <laughs> I'm glad to hear. <laughs> well, I just feel bad about enjoying these dolphins and orcas in yeah. captivity the more I learned about them. I mean, I learned that they need to swim a lot every day. They, I learned about how they're pod orientated and so family orientated and their emotional capacity in both breadth and depth is something that we can't even comprehend just based on the physiology of their brain. So 
it's hard because I'm guilty because I have all these good memories. But then also I've had some, I would call responsible memories where I've swam with dolphins in the wild or I've gone whale watching and I've seen cool. pods of orcas. Yeah. And those, I think, because you're in the wild, become a lot more magical than right. being in, in a zoo or an aquarium. Do you feel that this ban on whales and dolphins in captivity takes on a more emotional toll or there's just a more emotional resonance because a lot of us have maybe childhood memories attached with it or because as science has come more into the mainstream, we understand more about these creatures? Yeah, I mean, let me... You were very honest with with your past experience, and let me be honest with mine, mm-hmm. um, and which I think many people will probably not know uh, is that well, for this part they would know. I think that I'm originally from Montreal. I moved mm-hmm. here 19 years ago to go to law school to help animals with the law. But um, growing up in Montreal, I started being an animal rights activist in my teens. Okay, and before then. I've always loved animals. We had um, animals at home. We would go to my, and I remember specifically going with my father to, I forget what it's called now. Um, uh, It was by the Olympic Stadium in Montreal to see dolphins perform. Yeah. Yeah. And we went more than once. Uh, We went, I think, a bunch of times. And I remember... Uh, and I must have been like, probably like my daughter's age. I don't know, anywhere between five and eight, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I just remember watching them and like throwing the balls in the pool. Yeah. And there were people interacting with them. And th- there was like a whole lively experience there. Mm-hmm. And um, and my memory of that was, oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. Mm-hmm. But then fast forward just several years later... And, and kind of like what you're saying about how you learned about how, about their social structure, mm-hmm. their intelligence, the fact that these are sentient beings. Yeah. It doesn't take that long. And they have language. and Yes, they have language. And they're some of the smartest creatures on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I felt terrible. And to this day, I feel terrible. But you yeah. can't undo what's, what what is done you could only learn from it totally and and i think that there's no point in feeling guilty about it um even though i just said i feel terrible about it (laughs) but i don't dwell on it i don't dwell on it because i think a lot of us have learned from our mistakes Mm -hmm. um but the critical thing here is that while my memory of it was oh that's cool to see dolphins jump and throw the ball I did not learn anything from that. I didn't learn anything about dolphins. Yeah. I didn't learn about their social structure, about how intelligent they are, how they communicate and all of that. Mm-hmm. And so that is why I find it infuriating when I see um, institutions that still keep cetaceans in captivity and they claim that it's a benefit to educate children, that it's a benefit because we're teaching children to have a connection with wildlife and to learn about these uh, majestic animals. Right. I say that is total BS. 
what kids do get out of it is kind of what I got out of it at that time, which is, oh, that's cool. Mm. Do they learn anything of substance about the animals? No. Yeah. And if anything, I would say that it's a detriment, could be a detriment in the long run uh, to the kids and to the relationships that they could foster mm-hmm. um, with animals and the views that they have of animals um, by taking them to aquaria and and to, to shows like that. Like right. I think I, I became who I am um, partly because I know uh, – my parents and my mother specifically uh, cares very much about animals. And mm-hmm. so maybe I was influenced by that. And I realized that, okay, the like going to Aquaria is wrong. I've also read about it and studied it in school. And, mm-hmm. you know, just my interest, I gravitated towards that and I learned about it. But the, and unless kids get that type of exposure right, either through their parents or on their own, Mm -hmm. I think what we're actually teaching children by going to Aquaria is that, oh, it's okay to keep animals in tiny tanks that are completely unnatural and where they're suffering both physically and more importantly, mentally, because they're bored out of their minds and depressed out of their minds. I think think we're sending a message to kids and teaching them that it's okay, doesn't matter. We mm-hmm. could just do that to animals. They're there for our use and our entertainment. So if that's the education you want to teach children, and if that's what you call education, then fine. Well, not fine. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. there's no... Well, we can't have a conversation at that point. No. Right. And, and there's no... There is... I could... Like, I wholeheartedly believe that there is absolutely no educational value mm-hmm. to keeping animals whether it's cetaceans which for those who who may not know cetaceans are whales dolphins and porpoises Mm -hmm. um there's no education value in keeping these animals in captivity at all and now i could just hear you know the voices saying well yes because how often you know we're not rich we can't go to africa to bring our kids to a safari Mm -hmm. maybe we can't afford to go uh, on a whale watching tour, mm-hmm. you know, and we want our kids to be exposed to animals. And, you know, I could see on the face of it that there is some, um, I, I definitely don't want to say merit. I, I could see the appeal to parents wanting to bring their kids to zoos and aquaria because they they feel like they don't have any other opportunity where their kids can be close to the animals. Sure, But that isn't not the way to do it you know what especially nowadays fine even if you can't go to a safari in africa like most of us can't i can't now which is on my bucket list i hope to do that (laughs) one day um even if you can't go on a whale watching tour right off the coast of bc Mm -hmm. um there's tv there's videos there's like the technology nowadays is there there are books and yes granted it's not the same as being able to see a whale like right there in front of you in the tank but at is that worth keeping an animal in a concrete tank that is a fraction like the slightest fraction of what they would normally swim yeah in the wild or roam in the wild mm-hmm. no it's not worth it so even if you know a, a parents tell me well you know um we don't mean to be cruel to to the animals we don't think it's being cruel 
It, it is. Like you're not the one directly whipping the animal and you're not causing physical harm yourself. Mm-hmm. But by giving money to these institutions, we are uh, we're ensuring that they continue to exist and to continue to make animals suffer. And I really do believe and I openly say that it is animal cruelty mm-hmm. to keep animals in captivity. And like I said, this is one of those issues that I feel generates a lot of emotion from all sides <laughs> because yes. there is a defensiveness from parents or maybe people like us who saw whales and dolphins in captivity as children and we have good memories and maybe some of us feel guilty and some of us don't. It just seems like it's overwrought with a lot of emotions. Yes, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes, yeah, no, I agree. As are most uh, animal animal protection or animal rights issues, you yeah. have those who feel very strongly for and very strongly against whatever the issue is. So let's talk about the ban specifically. What does it mean? Because as far as I know, there's only two facilities now in Canada that house cetaceans. Yes. The Vancouver Aquarium and Marineland in Ontario. Yes, that's right. So what does the ban mean? Why is it significant? Okay, uh, so what it means is that it bans the keeping of cetaceans in captivity. And again, we're talking about whales, dolphins, and porpoises. Mm-hmm. Um, the law also bans the the breeding of cetaceans. Okay. And it, bran- it bans the import and export of, of cetaceans. What it means for mm. the current animals in captivity, for the current cetaceans, and let me just say, uh, you're right. In Canada, there's only the Vancouver Aquarium and Marineland that mm-hmm. still have cetaceans. Marineland has many, many more. Marineland has about 50, uh, 55 beluga whales. What? Actually? They have 55 beluga whales, five dolphins, and one orca. And Vancouver Aquarium has one beluga. They have 55 belugas? In yeah. what? Well, I, I don't know. I, I haven't been there. Yeah. I, I haven't been there. Um, oh, my God. That's a lot. I, I, and they're, they, and just to be clear, they may not all be there. Okay, they rent they may them not, out. Yeah, or, they rent them yeah. out and they own them. But I think they, they actually own more than that. But in any event, yeah. those are the only two institutions. So for the animals that are still, that are there at this moment, at the time the law was, was passed, which was just this past June, mm-hmm. in 2019, after years of being debated, yeah, um, they they are grandfathered in, which means that they get to stay. Sure, but for future animals, um, they're not allowed keeping them in 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 captivity anymore. Now there is an exception. There is an exception in the law mm-hmm. um, where there's an exception for rescue research and rehabilitation. Okay. You know, so it's not a perfect law because I think it leaves some room to, well, what does rescue mean? What does rehabilitation mean? What is, um, but um, that said, that if these facilities want to keep these animals for those purposes, again, for rescue research and rehabilitation, they have to get a license from the government. So mm-hmm. we'll see, you know, how that works, how how often will these licenses be given, if at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but the good thing about this law is that even if there is what I think is this, this loophole in it, um, they're not allowed to show these uh, animals for entertainment purposes. Gotcha. Yeah, so, that was my next question. Yeah, so they're not allowed to show them for entertainment purposes, and I think that that 
I don't want to say closes the loophole entirely, mm-hmm. but it definitely shuts it takes the away door. Incentive. It does. It does. So, so they won't. So the current animals can be shown for entertainment purposes. No, 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 no they can't. No. The current animals no, cannot. No, they cannot be shown for entertainment purposes. They get to stay there, but not for entertainment purposes. So we'll see how that works out too. Because for a facility like the Vancouver Aquarium, where the beluga is, um, and and I've seen footage of uh, the beluga, how it's basically one, it's literally like one small little tiny pool. Yeah. Which is just, okay, I'm not going to start over that again, but it just it's so heartbreaking to see this. This beautiful, sentient, social animal be completely alone and just going around in tiny circles all friggin' day. Like it is. Anyway, so the point is, I'm not too sure what, what, like how they're going to deal with that. Yeah, so when does this kick in? Because as far as I know, you can still see that beluga at Vancouver Aquarium. I I haven't heard of Marineland effectively shutting down. I mean, that's what they would have to do if you can't I don't know. We'll see how that works out. Yeah, we'll see how that works out. So the ban means that they can keep them, but they cannot show them for entertainment purposes. That's right. That's right. What if, I mean, if you have 55 belugas, maybe not all all at once, but what if they breed? Okay, that's a good question. And that was one of the issues that uh, the lawyer for Marineland raised during the hearings in front of the Senate and the Justice Committee in Mm -hmm. in Parliament is that it's the law as drafted is unconstitutional because what happens to those whales that may be pregnant and then they deliver Mm -hmm. during um, like right after the law is passed. Um, We'll we'll see. I, I think those whales had to be taken out, but we'll see. I, I don't have an update with um, with what happened, if anything, with uh, with a beluga that was pregnant. But no, the the point is, they're not allowed. They are not allowed breeding them. Okay. Now, um, and and if they are, they're in violation of the law. And what that means is that if they're in violation of the law, it's a criminal code offense, mm-hmm. and they can't for this particular law, they can't not go to jail, but they could be fined up to two hundred thousand dollars. Interesting. Yeah. So, and also just so that the listeners understand, um, this this law, this cetacean ban, the ban on keeping whales, dolphins, and porpoises in captivity, mm-hmm. it's a it's an amendment to the criminal code. So it's not like you could look up an actual piece of legislation or law that specifically deals with this. It's okay. part of the criminal code and then you have to scroll through the criminal code and then it'll be it'll be in there. Yeah. Yeah. So but overall I have to say that it is uh an absolutely incredible thing mm-hmm. that Canada has banned the keeping of cetaceans at the federal level because that means that no province, no city, no county, no like mm-hmm. no one in Canada can bring in uh, these animals and keep them in captivity right. anymore. And so to be clear, because this is actually blowing my mind, right now, no whale, dolphin, porpoise that is in captivity in Canada between these two facilities can be shown for entertainment purposes. That's now, uh, it, yes, that that's what it is. But now, is there a way to argue around that? Well, you know what, actually, I'm not going to give them ideas about how to argue around but the, that. But, okay, yeah, so the but idea they're maybe they're just swimming. But they're not being, they're not doing anything for If their... that's what they want to say, that's kind yeah. of r- r- ridiculous, I think. But um, yeah, they're not allowed, they're not allowed um, keeping them for entertainment purposes. No, they're grandfathered yeah. in. And so they're not allowed, like, showing the beluga 
do tricks and gotcha. jump and things like that. Yeah. So, but the beluga would still be there for viewing, presumably. I I think, especially for the Vancouver Aquarium, I think that's a very uh, good possibility. Yeah. And if they're talking to kids about the beluga and trying to teach them, maybe. But again, like how much kids actually learn about the beluga and belugas in general, I I think is minimal, if if anything at all. So if there is a dolphin or whale that is rescued in the wild and let's say objectively could not survive in the wild will it be then rescued by some of these facilities and housed how does that work in yeah the future? well we're we're going to see what what we're really hoping for in the future and it's already in the works there's the whale sanctuary project and there are a couple of other uh and one other key organization mm-hmm. that are working on creating sanctuaries seaside sanctuaries for injured cetaceans and hopefully to get the cetaceans that are currently at the Vancouver Aquarium and Marine Land and maybe elsewhere in the world to put them in these sanctuaries. They're looking at um, at waters off the coast of eastern Canada and western Canada, although I think that eastern Canada may be the place for it. Okay. And so... These are sanctuaries. Some may say, well, what's the difference? Like, they're still in captivity, right? But huge difference. Yeah. For one, they're an it's open ocean. Open ocean. It's not a friggin' tank, yeah. concrete tank. Yeah. Um, it's in the natural environment and yet, and, and significantly bigger. Well, not only will they be able to swim a good distance, but mm. they'll be able to dive mm. with down below, which is what they're meant to do and what they do right. naturally. And and it will be um, what what it's proposed is that people will be able to view them from a distance, mm-hmm. not feed them fish and crackers and whatever sure. else. Um, but they'll be able to watch it's like whale watching from the coastline. Yeah. And that is a true educational experience, and mm-hmm. they'll provide um, reading material, and it'll be kind of, I don't know if you've taken road trips across Canada or um, sometimes, or camping or whatever. I'm like, I love camping. And so when we go hiking or whatever, and we take trails, and they're like these, um, you walk along the forest or wherever you are, and there are these posts, and it gives you some information sure. about what you're looking at. And yeah. so that's the idea cool. um, with these sanctuaries. What are the research benefits, if any, <laughs> that truly exist? Because you hear about the Vancouver Aquarium saying that they oh, they do all this research on the animals that they have, and this helps the animals, this helps science. Is there any benefit to the research? What kind of research are they doing? Okay, obviously, I'm uh, I have. I have a certain perspective on this. Sure. Uh, and obviously, if you ask, let's say, uh, a veterinarian or a scientist who's employed by one of these aquaria institutions, they'll have a different view. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm certainly not a scientist, but I know just from my work in the area and my experience um, in the animal protection movement, there is no research value mm-hmm. okay let me rephrase that maybe i'll give them this maybe there is very little research value maybe not like no research value at all mm-hmm. but little research value um but what they generally like generally speaking no question that what they learn about is how these animals are in captivity Right. Not about how these animals are in the wild, yeah. but how these animals are in captivity. 
And how does that research help the animals in the wild? It doesn't. Right. And that's so, a good point. So that's why I like I, I can't say no research value because there's you know I guess arguably there's some research value because you learn about how they are in captivity, mm-hmm. but there's no research value in the sense of how that research applies to the animals in the wild. Maybe there's some basic things, but these are probably basic things that they'd be able to learn about just watching them and observing them in the wild. Sure. Or even if there was, I would say that even if there was arguably something new that they have learned about the dolphins in or uh, belugas in captivity, which Mm -hmm. I think the Vancouver Aquarium specifically claims that they have, right? Um, Is it worth keeping these sentient beings in captivity where they suffer mentally and physically on a daily basis to learn that one little thing. No, it's mm-hmm. not. And and I would forego that whatever little thing that they claim they've learned to, to have them out in the wild where sure. eventually we would learn. From your perspective, and obviously you take on an activist's perspective, an activist's lens as well, are there any animals that should be kept in captivity, where do you draw the line? Okay, I, I guess it depends how you define captivity. Okay, right, because well, animals, like a fish tank with fish is is captive, right? Yes, that I would say no, but arguably animals that no ensign like that's fine. Yeah, fish and tanks, no. And I have to say, okay, that said, that said, but you can keep fish and no, tanks. No, no, oh, no, you can't. no, no. Oh, really? I, I Interesting. Wouldn't. No, and 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 I say, okay, so if you if you ask me this, and I I say this openly again, yeah. Um, I remember as a child, we had uh, fish in, like little goldfish mm-hmm. in fish tanks. Yeah. Not for very long. I think we, we did that for a few years. Yeah. Um, and, and I think now looking back, that is wrong. We're learning more and more about fish too. Mm. And we're learning about how even these little guys are sentient, they feel, and they're smart. And they, they've done research studies on fish, showing how they have good memories, how they form bonds, they, right. they recognize faces. Hmm. And I know it's hard because it's, you know, you think of this little little fish like, oh, what's the harm? Because a tank is like 10 times the size of this little yeah. fish. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I get in and I mean, you see them even in malls. You see them in like at the dentist or wherever or at people's houses. And mm-hmm. I have to say, I... I feel, and especially now knowing what we're starting to learn more about fish, yeah. I, I, I think it is wrong. But to answer your question, is there ever, like, is it ever right to keep an animal in captivity? Um, so just to be clear, because sanctuaries, by definition, it, it is ca- sure. captivity, right? Yeah. So um, so if it's a true, and we have to be careful about that too, because now, you know, it's it's the in thing to say, oh, we're a sanctuary, we're, we're right. a sanctuary for, for the wildlife. Right. Um, we have to be really careful sure. uh, about whether it's genuine, like whether it's a genuine sanctuary or if it's someone who's disguising themselves as a sanctuary. Yeah. How about dogs and cats? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> that's, uh, I know. Where does that I don't want to go. I'm just curious. I know. I don't want to go into like this whole rabbit hole, as, as they say in English. Um, we. Dogs and cats have been domesticated yeah. for God knows how many how many 
centuries. I think it is very unrealistic to, to, to release say, them in the wild. Yeah. To, to release them in the wild and to say no dogs and cats allowed. Yeah. Um, Those poor chihuahuas. <laughs> right, right. Um, and I certainly, I mean, I've I've had dogs and cats my entire life. Um, what I do, I strongly urge people. It is to adopt as opposed to go to to a breeder, sure. um, especially because they're not that all breeders are bad. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of them who are, mm-hmm. but there's such an overpopulation of unwanted and abandoned cats and dogs and guinea pigs and you know you name it that uh, I always suggest to people that if they want an animal, uh, rescue one first before anything. And, mm-hmm. and actually on that note, what I also say is if you want a dog or a cat, do you want a kid? Because I think people should take it as seriously as right. having a human child because it's not just giving the animal like the dog or cat a bowl of food and that's it. Like, Let's talk about dogs for a second. Yes. One issue that you've brought up in the media is this idea of the dangerous canine and dogs that are labeled as such. Mm-hmm. And there was a case with a dog named Punky. Mm. Can you walk me through the issue in, in terms of what the dangerous canine label means, why it's important? Yeah. How many how many minutes do we have? I mean, we got like 20 minutes. We got 20 minutes. Give me a little okay, brief okay. on this and yeah, then we'll get okay, into it. Okay. So let me, yeah, this is a case. I mean, I feel terrible for the dog Punky. Um, and and for the dog owner in this case. But let me just uh, summarize it to say that Mm -hmm. um, the dog owner uh, went to trial. Oh, sorry. Let me just back up even more. So the dog bit, Punky bit, um, uh, he got into trouble after he had seriously bit a woman at uh, Locarno Park in like by Jericho Beach Mm -hmm. in Vancouver. And um, and Vancouver Animal Control seized him and and wanted to have him killed, or they called dis- uh, destroyed. destroyed, destroyed. And but prior to that, uh, the dog has been involved in other. Uh, biting incidents where he has caused injury to other people, including to the dog owner herself, according oh. to according to the the judge who heard the case the first time. So anyway, um, the city wanted to uh, to apply for what's called a destruction order, basically to have the dog killed. Mm. Um, the the dog owner uh, wanted to fight it. She went to court, lost. She went to, uh, then she appealed it to the Supreme Court, which is our mid-level court here in BC, mm-hmm. lost, and then went to the Court of Appeal, which is our highest court here in BC. And it was at that point where uh, I found out about the case because um, essentially the city prosecution office called me and they're like, Rebecca, we think you'd be interested in this case because we're going to bring up the issue of jurisdiction. And really what that means is that prior to this case, um, dogs that have been labeled as, quote, dangerous. And let me just be clear. We are not talking about dogs that are like out there to kill and to like kill everything that moves and every <laughs> child and every. No, we're talking about dogs who have who have maybe gotten into some trouble, have bit a person or bitten and maybe even killed another dog. Mm. Um, and those are cases that I do defend. But in none of those cases, and I could easily like I. I 
I could just bet on anything. None of these cases were do- were these dogs inherently like crazy and vicious. It right. just dogs are being dogs. So in BC and in many other parts in Canada, it's very easy for dogs to be labeled as dangerous. All it takes is uh, one little bite or even a scratch or even in some cases like a like just a growl or lunging. Really? But Interesting. It just it's crazy. But um, so. So under the, our provincial legislation, if a dog goes to trial and he is labeled as, quote, dangerous, in the past, courts have still released dogs on conditions. They were called conditional orders. Mm-hmm. And I could say I have never, ever lost a case defending a dog in these types of cases. Mm-hmm. And not because I'm like, I made some brilliant legal argument, although I'd like to say, I'd like to think <laughs> that some of that played a part in it. Sure. But it's because I was able to convince courts that just because a dog is, quote, dangerous doesn't mean he has to be killed. You could release a dog on conditions. And mm-hmm. the judges have agreed with me. And one of my cases in 2013 at the Supreme Court set a precedent for that. And so, yeah, and and the law was, you know, case law was clear that dogs can be released on conditions. But now with this case at the Court of Appeal, it was like I I really tried to convey the message to the legal team on both sides to please, like, find another solution and, and don't take this to the highest court because the risk is what the city was telling me is that if they're going to raise the argument that the the courts don't have the power to release dogs on conditions, Mm. that is it. That means an automatic death sentence for the dogs. So while my heart has gone out and does go out to Punky in this case, Mm -hmm. this case has now, like the whole case was about what the judges have said, and this is exactly what I warned about, is that... There's no power to grant these uh, conditional orders. So is that where the the case stands right now? Where so now that conditional releases th- are not release, allowed. They're not yeah, allowed. They're not allowed now. Wow. And so that is, you know, I I was unable to eat after like a whole week after this decision came out. So now in I, Canada or in BC? This is BC. Okay, so, this so now is in BC. Be, yeah, this is just in BC. If a dog is deemed dangerous, it is in automatically court, in court. So in let court. just let just be clear, because animal control still very often around the province still uh, goes around and hands out letters to uh, to dog owners saying your dog's aggressive or dangerous. Sure. No, so it's not. I'm not talking about those cases or those instances. I'm talking about when the city actually takes a matter to court yeah. and wants a destruction application. They want the dog killed. So that's the risk with dog owners now is that if the dog is deemed dangerous by the court, the court now does not have the power to release the dogs on conditions. And what, and what mm. really breaks my heart is that a lot of media out there have been portraying this as you know a win in animal law, which is like the total opposite this is a devastating loss for all future dogs in bc so but where this case stands now is from what i understand is that the dog owner wants to appeal this now to the supreme court of canada which is the highest court in the country Mm -hmm. and quite frankly while I, i had huge reservations about this case going to the highest court of bc because of what ended up happening um i hope that they do get they have to get permission. It's called leave. They have to get permission to be heard by the highest by the Supreme Court of Canada. Mm-hmm. I hope that they do get it so that this terrible precedent can hopefully be 
reversed. Right. And so that things can go back to the way they were. Like we had 15 years of, while again, the law was certainly not perfect because the law itself like didn't help us much, but the case law and that's when you go to court and mm. judges make decisions and other judges rely on those decisions. We had 15 years of good case law that said dogs could be released on conditions, but now we don't anymore. And so there is, okay, that said, I just want to say there is a glimmer of hope. And while while I say I have never lost a case, I'm going to see, you know, my track record now going forward because it'll be that much harder to win. But I do see a glimmer of hope because fundamentally, and this is what dog owners need to know, fundamentally what the court will want to know in these cases is if the dog poses an unacceptable risk to the public going forward. Mm-hmm. So if you can show to the court that you, uh, you've you bought a muzzle now, that you've hired an animal behaviorist, a dog trainer, and you're doing all these things to prevent something like this from happening again, hopefully that will help save the dog. But we're yet to see. As per your knowledge, have there been any dogs destroyed? After conditional yeah. releases? Um, n- no. No, and that's a thing. Okay. Like in in my cases, and, but yeah. and, okay. So also that, but then also as a result of this case with Punky, oh, have there been yes. dogs destroyed oh. that maybe would have been given a conditional release? Um, I I currently have three or four, about to get a fourth case, wow. and one of them may have to be. Um, and it really comes down to the dog owner's financial ability to uh, continue paying. Um, not only legal fees, but the city and I are now trying to find a creative way to get around this terrible precedent to mm-hmm. see if there's a way that we could still release a dog on conditions, but it's not really a conditional order. Anyway, it gets a bit technical, yeah. so I'm not going to get into that. Sure, but sure. suffice it to say that... But there are dogs that are in trouble now because yes. they cannot get that conditional oh, release. Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. And it really like... And I, I think this is also a personal issue for me. Of course, yeah. <laughs> because um, for years, unfortunately, terrible died January 24th of this year, but uh, he was a great Dane Mastiff and he was a bit of an a-hole, I have to say, Uh, but we were able to manage him um, and really well, not rehabilitate him because dogs, and that's a thing, Mm -hmm. uh, people very often confuse being able to manage a dog versus rehabilitate a dog. It's like people with diabetes or people with bipolar disorder or people with, you know, mental health issues. You can't, in many cases, you cannot rehabilitate you can mm-hmm. manage with medication or with you know security measures of some kind the same thing with dogs in many cases like you can't in very um, very often uh, dogs that have anxiety or stress you know and then that gets exhibited it looks like aggression it's not, it's not fundamentally aggression mm-hmm. it's actually anxiety you can manage that yeah um, and and let me know. give you an example. We'll sort of end it on on this note. Mm-hmm. My dad has a failed police dog, and she is the sweetest dog. And my dad, who is widowed, and Piper, they're just joined at the hip. Like, they have their own language. They totally get each other. They know, without even saying anything, they get each other. <laughs> Piper has a cork, though. She hates other dogs, mm. foams at the mouth, mm-hmm. at the sight mm-hmm. of other dogs. And my dad, you know, my dad got her when she was four. 
and he's put in a lot of time training her mm-hmm. to not freak out and she's she does very well she tries really hard (laughs) (laughs) but my dad's the only one that can walk her he's the only one that can control her and and knows the cues even Mm -hmm. before she freaks out and she's also very protective like she loves me but if i even put a hand on my dad's shoulder she'll jump on me not aggressively because she knows who i am but she'll get me to stop Mm -hmm. based on all of this and and uh, and everything that's happened with Punky and now there being no conditional releases. What would your advice to my dad be in terms of making sure that the dog never gets into issues? My very first piece of advice would be to call an animal behaviorist mm-hmm. to uh, to to assess the dog and to assess your dad. Okay. And so to see if there's anything that the animal behaviorist can can recommend. And um, I'll give a shout out here to Dr. Rebecca Ledger. She is she's phenomenal. She is one of the very, very few qualified true animal behaviorists on the North Pacific coast. Okay. because um, uh, there are a lot of dog trainers, so I just want to caution. Uh, the listeners, that there are a lot of dog trainers out there mm-hmm. who call themselves animal behaviorists. And there is no regulatory body or, you know, a government regulation or anything that regulates dog trainers or animal behaviorists. Sure. So anyone could really call themselves an animal behaviorist. So you have to be really careful with who you choose. But a good animal behaviorist will have qualifications of, from first from an education standpoint like mm. from a qualified university um, and they'll have good experience in this and it's it's basically like an animal psychiatrist and mm-hmm. it's so important because they'll be able to see they, they could actually read the animal and to know mm-hmm. okay is there something missing is maybe there's too high of a protein diet right. you know that's something I've learned over the last decade um, a high protein diet maybe the leash is you know there could be a better leash for the dog or, or harness or whatever it is but um, and then if ever in, in doubt as self-serving as this may sound but to call an animal lawyer to, to help like to at least guide in the process because there, it's unbelievable how many how many calls I get with dog owners saying animal control was just here and they gave me a letter that designates my my dog as vicious and she's so not she's like the sweetest <laughs> thing but she did do this one little thing yeah you know and it has huge consequences because once you get a letter like that um, people tend to think that they have to now abide by what animal control says like mm. always muzzle always leash and like you have to spend like a whole bunch of money on redoing your property so it's fully fenced anyway point is is that you got to talk to professionals who know what they're doing okay and and also I caution people that um, animal law is, I'm so happy to see it's it's a growing field. It is. There's still like, it's still in its infancy. Yeah. But for people to do their research well on, on who they retain, and there's a free legal database. It's called Canly, C-A-N-L-I-I. And they could do a quick search on the lawyer's last name mm-hmm. to see, you know, what cases they've been involved in. Now, not all cases are reported, and actually, uh, most are not reported. W- what I mean by that is they're not in this legal database. Sure. But um, if a lawyer claims that they've been doing a certain area of law for a long time, whether it's animal law or whatever other area, um, 
there should be a more at least more than one case in there with sure. the lawyer's name. Yeah, that and makes sense. so I think ultimately people have to do their research with the professionals uh, that that they that they want to use yeah. to help them with their dog issues or any issues for that matter. So if you have a quote unquote problematic dog, have it have a behavioral yes. behavioralist look at it first. Yes, yes. And sort of assess to, the needs. And yes, I would. I really would highly recommend that because they're 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 psychiatrists essentially, or psychologists. I shouldn't say psychiatrists because legally they don't have the right to prescribe medication in sure. BC because only a veterinarian can. But um, so I guess they're more akin to psychologists. But yes, they they really should um, get a, a good qualified professional to, to help out. And that's what I would recommend to your dad. No matter, even if, and there are a lot of dog owners who say, but I know my dog might be the best. And I like, <laughs> I've been doing this for so long, which is precisely maybe the problem yeah. because you're so used to doing things a certain way that you may not realize that there may be another way. Yeah. Or something that you don't really recognize. You're not, you're still not the professional. Sure. Right? So. He's really good with her. Oh, He's I'm sure. He's very stubborn, <laughs> but I will, I will let him know that maybe yeah. you should look into it. Maybe make a weekend out of it. And uh, Yeah, it's worth never it. Looked out. Yeah. Because there are also, there, there are even some, some minor, what are more minor recommendations mm-hmm. that an animal behaviorist can make, like a switch in diet, exactly. let's say. Yeah. Um, also to be checked out by a veterinarian, because sometimes even if we think our dogs are healthy, there could be an underlying issue Interesting. Um, that causes a certain behavior, including anxiety and mm. stress. And it's always good to go to a veterinarian to work together with an animal behaviorist to figure out first, is there a physical reason, like a medical reason right. why the dog is the way um, he or she is? Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Our time's up. Aw. I know. There's so much more I want to learn. This was really fun, though. And this was outside of my wheelhouse. And I feel I feel like I learned a lot. Like, it's absolutely fascinating, both on the whale's end and then on the, the dog's end. Yes. So I wanted to thank you for explaining some of these bigger issues to me in a very digestible way. If listeners want to do so, what's the best way for them to keep up with you and keep up with animal rights and animal law? This is your chance to plug your social media and everything else. No, I think so. First of all, thank you so much for for inviting oh, me my here. Pleasure. Like I'm just I, I I had a great time too. If people want to reach me, they can go to Breder Law B R E D E R L A W dot com. I'm also on Twitter at Animal Law Canada, all one word, um, and I make myself accessible to people so please feel free to reach out to me and to learn about animal rights and animal protection issues like just stay on top of the news don't believe Mm -hmm. everything you read in the news though (laughs) but um yeah i'm more than happy to to make myself available to people and i will say your website has very interesting media clips of you talking about some of the hot topics or the the big issues of the day yes i do have to that reminds me i do have to update my website <laughs> but yes there there's some <laughs> there's information there, there. Yeah. yeah there's yeah there's definitely information there that uh that people could start reading and and if there are any other questions and please feel free to my email is there um and my phone number is there but breaderlaw.com is probably the easiest thing to remember and at animal law canada on twitter Perfect. Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, a trailblazer when it comes to animal rights, one of the most influential lawyers in our country, 
and the founder of Bretter Law. She is Rebecca Bretter, and I am Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace.